So as we look at 1 Corinthians 15 today, let's understand a little bit about uh, the times, the city. Holy Spirit used the Apostle Paul to write this wonderful book to this city of Corinth, which was a Greek city. And you need to understand something about Greeks and the way they thought to understand why is Paul writing this chapter here. Well, the Greeks, on the whole, didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Well, that might explain uh, a lot of things when you see the way they fought battles and so forth. But most Greek philosophers considered the human body was a prison. Therefore, they welcomed death because death was, was deliverance from this bondage, from this prison. And so the skeptical attitude had uh, somehow invaded into the church, and Paul is facing it head on, like he did so many things in every chapter. But he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to, to, to take this bull by the horn, so to speak, and, and address this very important subject. Now why? Well, because the truth of the resurrection had doctrinal as well as practical implications for our lives. It's just too important for Paul to ignore it. Too important for us to ignore this. And so through the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul dealt with this very important subject, and he does it by answering seven basic questions from this chapter. So we're just doing a quick fly over here so you can see the importance of the resurrection. Here's the first question addressed in this wonderful chapter is, is this. Are the dead raised? Are the dead raised? Remember, Greeks on the whole didn't believe in people being raised from the dead. So it's important to note here that the believers at Corinth uh, did believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul started his argument with that fundamental truth. So he presents, in fact, three proofs here to assure his readers that Jesus Christ indeed, uh, he arose from the grave. It did happen, as he said it would. So here's the first proof. Paul mentions their salvation, and by their, referring to the believers in the church at Corinth. So look at chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Interesting two verses. Paul had come to Corinth and preached the message of this good news we call the gospel, and obviously their faith had transformed their lives. But an integral part of the gospel message was the fact of Christ's resurrection. After all, a dead Savior can't save anybody if he can't even save himself. And so Paul's readers had received the word, it says, he trusted Christ, they had been saved, they're now standing on that word as the assurance of their salvation. And the fact that they were standing firm here was, was proof that their faith was genuine. Their faith was not empty. It was real. So the first proof that the dead are raised is here is there just Paul points out their salvation. Number two, the Old Testament scriptures point to this truth as well. Look at verse three. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Notice he mentions the Scriptures a few times there. So when Paul wrote uh, those that phrase, uh, according to the Scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament, that first part of your Bible. So much of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed to Christ. Uh, it mentions sacrifice of Christ, who is the one who is going to become our substitute and our Savior. But where does the Old Testament declare His resurrection happening on the third day? Some people look at this passage and say, where is that in the Old Testament? Well, glad you asked. Well, Jesus actually... Uh, points to this himself, I know, New Testament, but he, expo- he, he pointed to the experience of Jonah. Look here, Matthew, chapter 12, verse 38. This is, Jesus is speaking. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Teacher, well, that's not Jesus, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, but Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So there's at least one reference that was pointing to Christ. We see the Old Testament showing that uh, Jesus would be buried three days. Well, the third proof that the dead are raised is, is, well, look, verses 5 to 11, we see that Christ was seen by many witnesses. Well, there's a huge list here. Uh, if you look at verse 5, for example, it mentions uh, uh, he appeared to Cephas and the twelve. Verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Uh, verse 7, he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's Paul speaking. So, there's a lot of people who had seen the resurrected Christ in a real physical body. So after the resurrection, he, he's seen by these people, they were able to witness his that he was alive. 500 plus saw him at the same time. <laughs> so there's no way that could have been a hallucination or a deception. But one of the greatest witnesses of the resurrection has to be Paul himself. Remember, he was called Saul uh, before he was converted as an unbeliever, he was soundly convinced that Jesus was dead. But the radical change happened in his life. A change which brought him just persecution and suffering is certainly evidence that the Lord had indeed been raised from the dead. Now, why would people put their life on the line to, be, to go through suffering and persecution and death for a lie? Or something that never happened. Well, of course it happened. That's why they went through all this. 
read Paul's sufferings. He knew it was real. He talked to Jesus. So these are some proofs that the dead are raised. The second question is, is this, is the resurrection essential to the faith? Is it essential to the faith? Well, the, the, the gospel is absolutely essential. Uh, I mean, back in verse 3, it mentions, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. The gospel is of first importance, he says. So is the resurrection essential to the faith? Well, Paul goes through a huge, huge list of consequences here in this chapter, which we, we're not going to take the time to go through all these. Certainly can't do them justice. And so to show that the resurrection is absolutely essential to the faith, Paul gives it seven disastrous consequences here that would result if there was no resurrection. So four of them are uh, theological in nature, and then three of them are kind of personal to Paul. So I've kind of put them up here on the screen so just so you could see where the references are coming from. Uh, but first of all, in verse 13, we see that Christ would not be risen. Obviously, if uh, if there was no resurrection. Verse 14, preaching of the gospel would then be meaningless, pointless, worthless. Number three, faith in Christ then would be worthless if Christ didn't arise from the grave. And then number four, all witness to and, the, and all the preachers of the resurrection would therefore be liars. Don't listen to them because they're liars. Well, Paul's personal consequences of no resurrection are verses 16 through 19 there. Uh, we see all people would still be in their sins, including Paul. All former believers would have eternally perished. And three Christians would be the most pitied people on earth. Because they're zealously following something that never happened. Hmm. So there's... Seven disastrous consequences if the resurrection had never happened. It has huge impact on lives and faith. So you can have a read of those. But the third question is, when then are the dead raised? I want to focus more on the on uh, more of the middle part, which doesn't often get preached to this wonderful chapter. When are the dead raised? Well, to, to show this and answer this question, Paul uses three images to answer this important question. The first image he gives is of first fruits. Now, if you don't understand first fruits, go back to your Old Testament, read about that. Uh, but it's it's mentioned in verse 20. Verse, verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised. Now notice it starts with the word but contrasting all those disastrous consequences. If there was no resurrection, but Paul says there is a resurrection. Christ did conquer the de death. <clears throat> he did rise. He is alive. So he says, yes. He says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is the first fruits. And then in verse 23, he says, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So when are the dead raised? Well, after Christ, according to verse 23. So think, think of Christ as a first fruit. Think of, 
uh, the sheaf of the first fruits. They had a big celebration in Jewish culture. And so Jesus arose from the dead three days later on the first day of the week. And then he, he's, he's illustrating this, this first fruits principle with his life, his death and his burial and resurrection. And so when the priests uh, of the Old Testament waved that sheaf of the first fruits before the Lord, it was a sign of great things to come. It was looking forward to an entire harvest that belonged to God. It all belonged to Him, but it was just a, a symbolic gesture to God. Hey, it's, it's all yours. We thank you for it. Here's, here's the first and best part going to you. When Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, the, the imagery here is this was God's assurance to us that we also would be raised one day as a part of a great future harvest. And so we can look forward to the resurrection because Christ is the first fruits. And so to believers, then the Bible calls death sleep. The imagery of death for a believer is sleep. It's only sleep. The body, in a sense, sleeps, but the soul doesn't die. Every one of you has a soul. That soul cannot die. Uh, the, the soul, when, you're, when your body dies, your soul's still alive. So if you're a believer, that soul will be with God. As uh, the Bible says, uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So the soul's at home with the Lord, and at resurrection, then the body is going to be awakened, that your body will be glorified as Jesus' body was. Well, the second image in this chapter is Adam, the very first human being that God made, Adam. Look at verse 21 here. It says, For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul sees here in Adam a, a type of Christ. He's Christ is the second Adam. But in this case, it's, it's by way of contrast, a vastly different Adam. See, the first Adam, he's made from the earth. And of course, the last Adam, who is Christ, came from heaven. The first Adam disobeyed God and brought sin into the world, brought death into the world. But the last Adam, he obeyed the Father and he brought righteousness and life and conquered death. So Paul uses the, the, the image here of Adam. But he also uses the image of the kingdom to answer this question in verse 24. He's talking about this the kingdom of Christ. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who, is, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. 
So, when Jesus comes to the earth, he said he's coming back, coming back to the very place he, he left, Mount of Olives. What is he going to do? He's going to banish sin, it says, uh, for a thousand years. He's going to establish his earthly kingdom. Read Revelation chapter 20. To, to, it talks about that. And we see that believers will, will reign with Jesus Christ. They're going to share in His glory and share in His authority, delegated authority. And this kingdom, by the way, was prophesied in the Old Testament. Nothing new. Uh, but we typically call it the millennium because uh, the word millennium comes from Latin, mil, mille, uh, meaning a thousand, annum means year. So it's a thousand year reign of Christ. But then the Bible says in Revelation 20, even after the millennium, there's going to be one final rebellion against God, which of course King Jesus will put down easily. The lost will be raised, judged, and eventually cast into the lake of fire. And then, I love this part, in Revelation, it mentions that the death itself will be cast into hell, and the last enemy will be destroyed. Praise God. Gone forever. And Jesus Christ will put all things under His feet. And then we read Revelation 21 and 22. There is a new heaven and a new earth that will be ushered in. No more death. No more curse. No more sin. It's perfect once again. And so you might ask, well then when will Jesus Christ return for His church? Well, I can't give you the date for that. I would be a fool to even attempt that. But when it does occur, uh, verse 51 of this chapter, sorry, not 51, 52 of this chapter says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That we do know. That we do know for sure. And so this truth should encourage us to be ready. My friend, are you ready? Because if you're not ready, you're in trouble. Because <laughs> it's going to happen so fast, it's, you're, just, you're not going to have time to get ready. So I hope you're ready. Well, the fourth question that Paul addresses here is, why are the dead raised? Why? Well, the resurrection of the human body is a future event. It really has some compelling implications for our personal lives. And in fact, Paul cites at least three areas of Christian experience here which the resurrection motivates us. So the resurrection should motivate you in at least three ways here, okay? Number one, it motivates us to evangelize. It motivates us to evangelize. Now we got to... Some interesting verses in this middle section here. Look at verse 29. Now here's one that uh, gets ripped out of context to mean uh, some interesting things. But verse 29 says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Yeah, <laughs> good question, rhetorical question. So what does it mean there to be baptized for the dead? Now, if you're a good Mormon, you would believe this. You can do, do things to, to help people who are already dead. And so some people take this to 
kind of this to, to mean this idea of a proxy baptism where a believer is baptized on behalf of a dead relative, but uh, you will find no no proof for that anywhere in Scripture. Uh, in fact, that's a direct contradiction to many portions of Scripture. Uh, we see the Bible says that salvation is a personal matter. Uh, you personally must believe, right? One of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16, tells you that. All who believe will have eternal life. It's uh, You must believe. You can't be doing this for somebody else. So it's a personal matter. You, you must decide for yourself. The other thing is nobody needs to be baptized to be saved anyway. You don't need any more proof than that. To, to Look at the guy who is next to Jesus, who is also crucified next to Jesus. You know, that guy died before he got baptized. <laughs> you know, they didn't take him off the cross and baptize him and nail him back up there, right? <laughs> That's silly. But Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so the phrase probably means, pro- notice I said probably, that the, the idea is you're baptized to take the place of those who have died. In other words, if there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, notice that that verse starts with otherwise. So if there's no resurrection, then why bother to witness? Why bother to, to, to try to lead others to Christ if there is no resurrection? Why reach sinners who are then just baptized and then take the place of those who have died? Pointless. And so each person on earth will share in either the resurrection of life or they go, they go to heaven, uh, or the resurrection of judgment, and then they go to hell. It's the only options. And so the reality of the resurrection, therefore, should be a motivation for evangelism. Number two, it motivates us to endure suffering. It motivates us to endure suffering. And if you don't believe that, read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. <laughs> Some gruesome stuff there. Over and over again, as I read that, just before these guys would be burnt at the stake or however they were martyred, they would often talk about, we, today, we will go see Jesus. We will have, we will be glorified. There's something better to come. Endure. Look at verse 30 though. Verse 30 says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers. By my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily, or I die every day. Uh, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Notice the next part's in quotation marks. Paul's not suggesting you believe this way. It's in quotation marks because he's quoting, he's quoting Greeks here, and he says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. <laughs> right? So, uh, let's read verse 34. It says, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So Paul's saying, if there is no resurrection, then what we do with our bodies has no bearing on our future. 
In other words, just go on living in your immorality. Immorality was, was a, just a kind of a normal way of life in Corinth. And some of the believers rejected the resurrection in order to rationalize that immoral life. And so that's why Paul says their evil company corrupts good morals. Uh, that, that, that phrase, evil company corrupts good morals, was a quotation from a specific Greek poet by the name of Menander. It was a saying that was no doubt, uh, no doubt familiar to Paul's readers here. However, the believer's body is, as Paul says in chapter 6, is a temple of God. And it has to be kept separate. You cannot treat the temple of God like you would the temple of an idol. It has to be separate from the sins of the world. And so the, the resurrection should, sep, uh, should, should motivate us. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I've, I've lost my place here. But, but it should motivate us to separate from our sin as well as to, to endure suffering. I missed that little phrase. You'll have a look there in your Bible. Paul says, you know, why endure suffering and death if, if death just is what ends everything? Why endure suffering? Well, it's kind of pointless, isn't it? And so that's why, that's why he says there in the text, well, just let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If tomorrow you just die and that's it, then live it up now. Live your best life now. If this is all there is, live your best life now. But that's not what Paul is saying, okay? That's not what God is saying. This is not the only life. So don't eat and drink and just be merry now. You do have a future to look forward to. And so it it should motivate us to endure suffering now, but it should also motivate us to separate from sin. So... Paul moves on to answer another question. The fifth question is this. How are the dead raised? How are the dead raised? Well, let's get personal. What kind of body are you going to have when you are raised? What's your body going to be like? There's all kinds of questions on this. For example, some people are particularly interested in this. You know, my wife and I have had a miscarriage, so we wonder about our our little baby. Uh, that died, you know, I believe I'm going to see that baby one day. What's what's that person going to be like? A mother and a father have a child die. It, you know, it, what, what am I going to see when I get to heaven? What is that person, that little person going to be like? Or your, your mother and father, you, you remember them, you know, looking really old when they died. Well, what are they going to be like when you see them in heaven? <laughs> right? You might have all kinds of questions. You might look in the mirror every morning and think, Wow, I hope I don't see that for the rest of eternity. Yeah, that's how I think anyway. But what kind of body are you going to have? All right, well, Paul answers, helps a little bit anyway. Look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? In other words, with what kind of body do they come? Well, there's his question. And then he takes, proceeds the next several verses and to answer this. So, you need to understand the Greeks reason here that the resurrection of the human body was something that was impossible. After all, when the body turned to dust, it just, it, it became soil from which other bodies then just derived its nourishment. So you're just eating your great grandpa, right? It, kind of that idea. 
But basically, the food we eat is a part of the elements of the bodies of generations long, long ago. That's the way they viewed it anyway. And so Paul's reply to this kind of reasoning here is Paul just says, you fool. (laughs) You fool. Look at verse 36. He says, you foolish person. In other words, that's kind of a silly question. (laughs) Because he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. (laughs) And so he made the important point here, the resurrection is not reconstruction. Nowhere does the Bible teach that that resurrection, that God is going to put together all these pieces, return to us our former bodies exactly as we had them on earth. And so Paul knew that such miracles cannot be explained, and so he uses three analogies here in in the next verses. Three analogies to to show us how the dead are raised. So I hope these these things the Bible mentions here will help you to answer this question. So the first analogy the Scripture uses is a seed. Hopefully you've all seen seeds. Hopefully you've you've planted a seed at some point. You've seen that seed grow. Hopefully you can understand the analogy here. So look at verse thirty, uh, verse thirty-six. When he, after answering or asking the question, "How are the dead raised?" verse thirty-six, he says, "You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is, is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain." But God gives it a body that He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same. But there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. So the first analogy there is a seed. So when you sow a seed, I hope you expect the the same seed to come up at harvest time. I mean, otherwise, why would you plant the seed if you didn't expect it to do something? But what does the seed do? The seed's supposed to die. And then from that death comes life. Now, as Scripture says here, you might plant some seeds of wheat, but what do you get back in return? You get many grains from that little seed as the plant matures. Are they the same grains, the same seed that you planted? that you get at the the top of the stalk? No. But there is some continuity. There's there's something very similar about the grain you get from the seed, right? That's the way God made it. You don't sow wheat and get potatoes. It's It's not the way God made it. So there is some continuity, and God's using that analogy of a seed to show you something about your resurrection body. So there's going to be something... Something, I'm assuming, recognizable, similar to the way you are now, the way you will be in your glorified state. And then Paul discussed the details of this marvelous change in verse 42. So what does that look like? Well, verse 42 says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. Well, that's one big difference. Your resurrection body is imperishable. It cannot die. Uh, what is sown in dishonor? It, it, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is 
sown a natural body, it has raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Uh, Reading on, verse 45, thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So, the body is buried in corruption. It's going to decay. But it's raised with a nature that cannot decay. There's no decay or death in heaven. You are bar- You will be buried. If you are buried, you will be buried in humility. Uh, despite the fact that our morticians are, are very skilled in their cosmetic work, uh, Nevertheless, it's, it's humility, isn't it? But you will be raised in glory, it says. In burial, the body is weak, but the resurrection body, you have great power. And so we praise God that we will be like Jesus Christ. And then in verse 46, it states a very important biblical principle. In verse 46, it says, first the natural and then the spiritual. What does that mean? Well, to put it another way, you could say first the earthly, then the heavenly. So first, you, you, you now have an earthly body. But one day, you will have a heavenly body. So the first birth gives us what's natural. The second birth gives us what is spiritual. And so God rejects that first birth. And then He says, you must be born again. John 3. So if we depend on our first birth, well, we're going to be condemned forever. But if you are depending on that second birth, the new birth, well, you, you can live with God forever. The uh, second analogy mentioned in this chapter is your flesh. So you have a seed and then the flesh. Look at verse 39. Verse 39 says, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. <clears throat> Obviously, God knows everything that's, that's happened in science, everything that was going to come, all the knowledge we would learn as humanity lives and grows through the centuries. God anticipated here the discovery of the science that the cell structure of different kinds of animals is obviously different. Fish are not the same as animals. Animals aren't the same as human beings. Birds aren't the same either. And so you can't breed various species just indiscriminately. And, and sometimes we as human beings get ourselves in trouble when we try that, don't we? For example, you breed a horse with a donkey, you get a mule, and they can't reproduce. Whoops. <laughs> Of course, God knew that, right? And there's all kinds of things like that. We, we, start, we start trying to play God sometimes, and it's, it's, it can be frustrating, and it can even be dangerous. So the human body has a nature of one kind, not the same as animals and birds and fish. They have their own particular kind of flesh, here it says. So here's the conclusion of the matter, if you will. So if God's able to make different kinds of bodies for men, animals, birds, and fish... 
then why can't he make a different kind of body for you at the resurrection? Right? By the way, if you're a pet lover, this is, this, has, this is not giving you any hope that you will see your pet in heaven. Okay? That is not the point of this. All right? so, so you pet lovers, don't take this and go whoosh, way out into uh, some weird you know, zone out there somewhere. That's not the point the Bible's making. Your pet is not made in the image of God. It doesn't have a soul. And so Paul's not teaching here that animals will be resurrected. He's just using them as an example. Otherwise, I mean, do you, if you take that too far, then you, do you want to be like the seed? <laughs> no thanks. Anyway, but so, so we've got the seed analogy. Paul mentions the flesh analogy here. And then the third one he mentions is heavenly bodies. Heavenly bodies. So he, he mentions them in verses 40 and 41. Uh, there's heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another kind. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So not only are there earthly bodies, as it says there, there's also heavenly bodies. And Paul's suggesting that one believer may be different from another believer. My view of God is... He's a great God of glory and variety, infinite variety. Just look at His creation. Do you think we're all going to be exactly the same in heaven? Uh, that's not the view I have of God. I think we're going to be very different, even though we will all have glorified bodies. And so these illustrations may not answer every question that you might have uh, about a resurrection body, but at least they... They do give us some assurances that, that you need. Now, what assurances are those? God's going to give us a glorified body. <laughs> and it's a body that's going to be suited to, to living eternity with Him. It'll be suited to the life in heaven. Uh, you're going to be able to use this new body to serve Him, to serve one another, uh, to glorify Him for all eternity. So at the moment... We cannot endure God's presence. We would be consumed. But there is coming a day when we have a glorified body. We will be with Him and we'll love it. And we won't want anything different. So, then you might ask, well, hey, what about the lost and their bodies? The, the unbelievers? What's, okay, you've been talking about believers and their resurrection bodies, but what, does the Bible say anything about the unsaved and what happens to their bodies? Glad you asked. Because the Bible also says in Revelation that the lost, the unbelievers, will be given bodies that will be suited for their environment. Read Revelation 20. There is a resurrection. They're going to stand at the great white throne. They will be glorified in a body suited for the lake of fire. And so they're going to suffer forever in that darkness and in pain. And so, my friends, this truth should exhort us, as you think about that, uh, should exhort us to be involved in the lives of others, to tell them about Jesus, tell the ones who do not know the Savior. They need to trust Him before it's too late. The sixth question that Paul answers is, does the resurrection bring victory? Well, that seems kind of obvious to me, but anyway... 
Uh, does the resurrection bring victory? Well, somebody has uh, written, I don't know where this comes from. It's an interesting quote. Nevertheless, I'm, I'm quoting here. There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He's not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion. And the subject of his sermon is always the same. He's an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of this appeal. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name is Death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday every one of you will be his sermon unless the rapture happens first. You say, well then, where's the Christian's hope? Because that's kind of doom and gloom stuff. Well, the hope of the Christian is, how can I say it? I, I I love the way Benjamin Franklin, way back in the 1700s, he put on his, he had put on his tombstone, and I saw it when I was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. He had an interesting quote put on his tombstone, but it's sad it's sad. My wife read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, and based on the writing of his autobiography, Franklin did not know Jesus. He rejected, in fact, he just flat out rejected Jesus, which is really sad. But nevertheless, what he had put on his, tombs, on his tombstone was brilliant because he said, uh, The body of Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work will not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. Well, he got that much right. <laughs> Every person's body will be revised and corrected and will be made new by the Creator. So does the resurrection bring victory? Well, if you're a Christian, the answer is yes. And Paul goes on to give us several reasons why the resurrection brings victory. Look at verse 50, 50, and he says here that Christ, number one, will transform our bodies. Look at verse 50. For I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So notice, Christ will definitely transform our bodies. They will be different in the fact they will be imperishable. You will be immortal. Clearly different from the way we are now, isn't it? So there's a huge transformation. Number two, 
Uh, does the resurrection bring victory? Absolutely. Number two, Christ's resurrection broke the power of death for all those who believe in Him. Verse 54 Verse 54 says, uh, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Notice, Something's missing. Death. (laughs) Death is is no longer master as it is at this moment. Because death is not the master over the master. The master, our Lord Jesus Christ, conquered death. And so death is swallowed up in His victory. Praise God for that. Well, does the resurrection bring victory? Number three, absolutely. Because the Father gives us the ultimate victory through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a victory to come for all those who put their faith in Christ alone. The last question is this, my friends. How should we respond to this truth? particularly the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which then brings implications for us, because those of us who have put faith in Christ, we look forward to the resurrection. Well, look at verse 58. How do you respond? Here's what Paul says in verse 58 to end this glorious chapter. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, because of this victory, we have a therefore. So whenever you see a therefore, you ask, well, what is it there for? Well, look at the whole preceding chapter, right? This glorious truth of the resurrection has serious implications for us. We are to respond to this truth. And so the first thing Paul says is to be steadfast. Steadfast literally refers to being seated. It means the idea is you are firmly settled and situated. You have no intentions of jumping up or moving around. (laughs) It's like the teacher in the classroom that says, Johnny, sit down, don't move. Stay there until I tell you to move. Right? You're, You're like, I'm firmly settled. I'm not moving. I'm a good boy. That's the idea. You are steadfast. But the word immovable there in in verse 58, it uh, it carries the same basic idea, but it's it's even more intense, more serious. Uh, Immovable means you are totally immobile. It's like a car without an engine that's sitting on blocks, you know, it's, it's, or something even more than that. But it's absolutely motionless. What's the point? Why would Paul say be steadfast and immovable? Well, Paul's talking about not being moved away from God's will, not being swayed by this worldly thinking that there is no resurrection. 
And so within His will, we're to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. That's God's will for you. I don't know what that looks like. We're not all the same. God's will is not the same for all of us. But you must be abounding in God's will for your life. Don't look at somebody else and say, well, I'll just follow what they're doing. (laughs) Don't let someone else say, well, God's will is... Really? Somebody says that, say, can you show me from Scripture what, where you get that from? And somebody comes to you and says, well, I have a word from the Lord for you, brother. Okay, where's that in Scripture? Right? If they can't prove it from Scripture, you ought to be a little weary of those kind of people. I like the way uh, John MacArthur kind of explained verse 58. Let me just quote him here for a moment. What a word Paul gives to the countless Christians who work and pray and give and suffer as little as they can. How can we be satisfied with the trivial, insignificant, short-lived things of the world? How can we take it easy when so many around us are dead spiritually and so many fellow believers are in need of edification, encouragement, and help of every sort? What can a Christian say I've served my time. I've done my part. Let others do the work now. Reasonable rest is important and necessary. But if we err, Paul is saying, it should be on the side of doing more work for the Lord, not less. Leisure and relaxation are two great modern idols to which many Christians seem quite willing to bow down. In proper proportion, recreation and diversions can help restore our energy and increase our effectiveness. But they can also easily become ends in themselves, demanding more and more of our attention, concern, time, and energy. More than one believer has relaxed and hobbled himself completely out of the work of the Lord. Until the Lord returns, there are souls to reach and ministries of every sort to be accomplished. Every Christian should work uncompromisingly as the Lord has gifted and leads. Our money, time, energy, talents, gifts, bodies, minds, and spirits should be invested in nothing that does not in some way contribute to the work of the Lord. End quote. Well, I've been rebuked. I've had my toes stepped on. They're sufficiently flat. That's what we need. We need to be reminded there is certain application and implications that come from glorious theological truths of Scripture. I am to be steadfast. You, my friends, are to be steadfast. You and I are to be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And the good news is, as we do that, notice the wonderful promise knowing that in the Lord, if you're serving Him, if, if you can eat and drink and do all to the glory of God, notice it says that your labor is not in vain. It is not empty. It is not futile. It is not worthless. You can even eat and drink to the glory of God. <laughs> the question is, are we doing so? And so let me ask you this, my friends. Is your faith futile? Is your faith empty? Is your faith in vain? It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. 
If it is, well, remember these words, my friends. <laughs> if it is, look at verse 58. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. If you do that, my friend, then your faith is not futile. If your faith is in Jesus, the one who has arisen, and you are looking for that day yourself, then everything you do in the Lord is not in vain. Serve Him with your whole heart, with your whole life. Pour your life, your resources, your energy into serving Him. So when you come to the end of your life, you'll have great reward. Jesus can look at you and say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may these glorious truths of what has been accomplished motivate us, encourage us to do what's right, to live right. May we be true, firm believers that Jesus died, was buried, but He rose again. May we recognize we now have a new Master. May we serve the new Master, Jesus, because death has been swallowed up in victory. Satan no longer is our Master. We don't have to walk after our flesh. We can walk in the Spirit. We can be steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. So, may this be our heart's desire. Give us this kind of a heart, we pray, that we would not be diverted, thrown about, knocked off uh, by, by lesser things that aren't so important as in knowing You and living for You. May we see the, the really important things of life and that there is a future because Jesus arose, we too will arise. We have hope and a glorious future to come. May we live for that. May our hearts be set on things above and not on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.